Well, we're in John chapter 13 now, and I want to give a special welcome to those of you who are joining us, uh, certainly everybody here this morning, but a special welcome to our teachers and coaches that have decided to visit with us this morning. It's an absolute delight to have you, and thank you for coming. We're thankful for your influence, as was already uh, intimated by Pastor Mike. And you're going to help illustrate a little bit this passage this morning. So thank you for unwittingly do that. Uh, we are in John chapter 13. We're going to begin in chapter uh, verse 31 in a moment. <clears throat> and Jesus, Jesus is a rabbi. In the Jewish culture, that is a teacher. And he has been engaged in some final lessons. And no doubt, as teachers, you are aware you ever heard of senioritis? Is that a word that exists outside of my school and my time? I don't know. But senioritis was something that the teachers looked forward to, didn't look forward to, at towards the end of the year when basically all the seniors knew that they were going to graduate, there was, there was a high probability that they weren't going to put in as much effort. And uh, they may not even show up to class and, until the very end and those sort of things. And so sometimes we understand as teachers, don't we, that the final lessons are the most critical, but often the hardest to understand. And this is where we're at. We have a lesson to students, Jesus' lesson, final lesson to his students in the Gospels. They're also known as the disciples. And earlier in chapter 13, we saw... Jesus do something out of place for a teacher to get down and to start washing his students' feet. Can you imagine doing that as a teacher or a coach today? Not only would you probably go to jail, but, uh, but you'd also make it on all the national news outlets. And Jesus wasn't about the, the fame in that. He was giving an object lesson. And sometimes the greatest object lessons that you can teach as a teacher or we can learn as a student, is, is something that's actually demonstrated and illustrated right before you. That's why I love chemistry. I love blowing things up, right? Who didn't love blowing things up? Have you ever wondered if those eyewash stations actually work? They do, and you can get in trouble for pulling them. And uh, I think Pastor Mike actually was oh, part of that. So sorry about that, Pastor Mike. He was a teacher at the time, so it's okay. Um, he was on the right side of the law then. But Jesus gives an object lesson by washing each, uh, the disciples' feet. A superior, as Pastor Mike preached, washing inferiors' feet, subordinates' feet. And then we see that Judas is clearly called out. Judas Iscariot is going to betray Jesus, the very one who loves him, the very one who washed his feet. Like any teacher, Jesus is interested in his students being able to learn and to thrive, and this is kind of key for our passage this morning, to thrive without his presence. Right? Every good teacher is looking to work him or herself out of a job. Now, we're, we're, we're trusting that more students are coming up, right? But we're also interested in those students that we have not staying students forever, at least underneath my tutelage. We want to see them graduate and grow and be able to learn by themselves. And so Jesus is trying to get his disciples, his students, to the same. 
Every good teacher and coach is interested in growing past the need for a physical presence of a teacher. And our passage deals with Jesus' concerns, and, and they are twofold for his students, twofold for his disciples. Number one, Jesus will be departing. He will be physically absent. Let that sink in for a second. Can you imagine living your Christian life up until this point with Jesus right by your side? They couldn't imagine a time without him there. And yet, you and I, we can't imagine really a time with him there. Oh, if only Jesus were here that I could ask him. If only Jesus were here to say, Gordon, instead of his poor wife having to do it. Gordon's my friend, so I can do that with 500 people around. Right, Gordon? Yes, amen, all right. He at least agreed publicly. You have it on record. (laughs) So Jesus is going to disappear. He's going to be physically gone. He's going to depart. And his disciples will remain. That's the second thing. They cannot follow him. Those are two critical lessons that Jesus is trying to get at here in John chapter 13. And so let's... Uh, let's begin reading here this morning. And in fact, these lessons are so critical that it's, this is really the introduction to what we know as the farewell or upper room, what? Discourse, which really moves into chapters 14, 15, and 16. But it starts here in chapter 13 and verse 31. Jesus, or John, tells us, therefore, When he had gone out, Jesus said, and we're going to find out who that he is in a second. You probably remember. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, verse 32, chapter 13, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Oh, Father, we pray for help today as we learn the absolute necessity of the final lesson that you have for your disciples as you depart and they remain. And Lord, we understand that we're in that same boat. You are not here physically with us, and yet we remain. So help us to learn the lessons you have for us today, the lesson of love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so I want us to remind us about the setting here that we have in John chapter 13. It's nighttime now. We were told that earlier in the chapter. We are in a secluded upper room. We are kind of hid away, out of sight from the public. 
In fact, we're out of sight because there is an arrest warrant for Jesus, our teacher. Our closest friends are around the table with us. We are told that there is one here that will betray us. Then suddenly Judas gets up and leaves, and we're all scratching our heads, not putting the pieces together, trying to figure it out. We have a meal, which we actually memorialized just now. We have a final meal. And while Jesus is still sitting, reclining at the table with us, with the shadows of the dimly lit room hitting his face, he calmly says, I am going, and you cannot come with me. And then he says, you will deny me. So I want to ask you a question this morning after that setting. How confident would you be in your ability to persevere? How confident are you in your ability to persevere today? In following Jesus. And Jesus wants us to be confident in following him. He understands that his disciples will deny him. In fact, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 14 uh, this morning. Um, you know, actually, because of time, we just don't have time to do that. Uh, so we won't. But there, basically, Jesus says this, that, uh, that you will all fall away, the shepherd will be stricken down, and the sheep will scatter. So it's actually a little bit more clear in some of the synoptic gospels that, people are, that, that his disciples will not follow him at least for a time. They will be more interested in the fear, in the uncertainty, in the problems that surround them than they are in following Jesus. Because in the face of fear, in the face of doubt, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of failure, Jesus wants a final lesson to be launched out into the hearts of his disciples. He wants them to know that loving one another is the answer to the chaos, to the uncertainty, to the fear, to the dread, to the absence of Jesus being hand in hand with you. The love of one another is what will get you through. Jesus doesn't pound together any more truth for them to absorb. He doesn't tell them to remain locked in this room until I come back. No, he says, remember what I just did? I just washed your feet and you were asking why and now I want you to wash one another's feet. This is the final lesson that Jesus wants his disciples to learn because this lesson is powerful. It will see us through to the end if we love one another. And so in the face of being absent, of being separated from Jesus, we're going to find three ways that this text helps us understand that we're going to find our way through by loving like Christ, by loving one another like Christ. And first of all, we're going to find our way through because 
we're able to glorify God through loving like Christ. We're going to find our way through because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. That's the second. And the third is we're going to find our way through because of the personal sacrifice that we're told to have. And so first of all, let's look at the goal of love, which is glorifying Christ. In verses 31 and 32, we see five times the word glory mentioned. You see it? Did you kind of? Jesus is knowing that a good teacher sometimes has to say the same thing five different ways. Make no mistake about it, his death will glorify God. Jesus loving to the end will glorify God. And so he wants us to understand that. And, and I want to unpack the truth here through this simple statement. God works through problems to accomplish his purposes, putting Jesus in his rightful place. He works through problems to accomplish his purposes, putting Jesus in the rightful place. And we're going to see how that glorifies God. And we see in verse 31, uh, uh, John says, therefore, when he had gone out, who's that he? Do you remember? That's right, that's Judas. When Judas had gone out, and you see, now we, we, we kind of get to another turning point in the gospel. When the betrayer departs, who do we have left? Those who are faithful. Those who are capable to what? Love one another. Judas wasn't capable to do that. He put on the show, he put out the money, he was the treasurer, but he wasn't capable. What was he capable of loving? Himself. That's right. The lesson is learned. And so this lesson is only for those who are in Jesus Christ, who are capable to love. It's very exclusive in that sense, but we'll, we'll see that it's also very evangelistic. And so Judas's heart was the opposite of love, wasn't it? It was the opposite of God's love. And so now we see the turning point. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said what? Now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. You see, it is part of God's plan. It was a problem, but the problem did not negate or did not neutralize the providence and the plans of the God of heaven. It wasn't in spite of Judas. It was because of Judas that Jesus is now going to be glorified. You see, the stumbling blocks that are oftentimes in your life are times for us to understand that God has a purpose and a plan. He's big enough to do it that way. And so we are told to love like Jesus, even with this problem, and especially because of this problem. God can accomplish his purposes. And what are those purposes? Well, we, we, we mentioned it. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, verse 32, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Boy, do we get the point? In other words, it's not a problem. This is what God intends. God intends. 
to happen. And, and he will accomplish it. And think about the cross for a second. You had Jesus, and on either side, there were two other criminals crucified with him, weren't there? You remember the one mocked Jesus. But what was the response of the other? He said, Jesus, what? Remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. You can't say that the cross didn't glorify God in that moment. That a criminal on the cross with no hope left turns to Jesus and says, remember me. And you remember that soldier down there that was mocking Jesus after the crucifixion? What did the centurion say? Truly, what? Truly, he is the son of God. You can't tell me that that didn't glorify our God. See, God works through the problems to accomplish his purposes, doesn't he? And aren't we glad as students around Jesus' feet in that dimly lit room, we are glad, even though we don't understand yet as a disciple, we are glad that he does. And so when I love like Christ, I'm going to obey the Father like Christ. How many times did Jesus say in John's epistle alone, excuse me, John's gospel alone, that I came to do my what? My Father's will, not my own. These are not my words I speak. They are his. I do nothing of my own initiative. But all that I do, what? I do because it is, I do the will of the one who sent me. I do as the Father commanded me. And you can just go through the Gospel of John and see that over and over again. And we see that in the purposes of God, in the plan of God, through the problems that are in our faces, that love always finds a way to obey. It always does. And Jesus gently and patiently shows us the way to do that. Loving and obedience to God's word go hand in hand. That's what Jesus shows us about God's purposes here, about God being glorified. And lastly, we said that Jesus is putting, uh, 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 or when we glorify God through even problems, Jesus is put in his rightful place. And look at that in verse 32. God will also glorify him in himself. There's a lot that we could unpack there, and you can, you can think about that phrase for a really long time and still try it, you know, itch your head a little bit about it. But not only is Jesus active in glorifying God, but God is also active in glorifying his son. And... and we talked about Hebrews a little bit. Pastor Mark was in Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't go there, we don't have time. I wish we did. But, but if you go to Hebrews, you start reading the third verse of the first chapter, you're going to see that Jesus is the radiance of his glory. And he made purification for sin. And then, Pastor Mark mentioned this, he sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high. And later in chapter 8 of the same book in Hebrews, we're told that where he sat down is God's throne room. He sat down and he is on the throne. You see, when God glorifies Jesus, 
He is King Jesus. He is on the throne, and he rules, and he reigns. And while he doesn't seem like he's ruling and reigning right now, my friends, he will. When he comes back, he will. In fact, a little while later, he says, a little while, a little while. And he uses that phrase all the time in John's gospel. But we have to understand that through the problem and through the purposes that glorify God, Jesus himself is put in the rightful place. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus put in his rightful place in your heart? Amen. It's not enough to know about him. It's not enough just to check off some boxes about church attendance or about doing good. But it's about making Jesus on the throne of your heart, period. Doesn't mean perfect, but it does mean period, doesn't it? And so our ability to be subjects in his kingdom are because Jesus made a perfect sacrifice for us. And so in Jesus' absence, we find our way in love through Christ's perfect sacrifice. And that's the second thing I want us to unpack this morning very quickly. This is the second aspect of love. This is the source of love that we see here in God's word in, 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 in Jesus' final lesson. We find our way in Christ's perfect sacrifice you see that in verse 33? Look at, he says, little children. This is really the first time Jesus talks like that to his disciples. And I want you to think about this for a second. We've kind of painted this picture of the room that we're in. Jesus is, let's just call him 33. He's in his 30s. The men around the table how old do you think they are? Five? Six years old? These are men. Some of them may be his senior. But as the son of God, he says little children. It is diminutive. It is, it is something that is, in a sense, tenderly, compassionately, but it's on the, it's on the con, it condescending side of things. In other words, I am your teacher. I am your elder. I do know more. I do have a way. And, and his way is the sacrifice that he's about, he's been trying to teach them and he's about to unpack for them. Little children. He doesn't get frustrated when they don't understand. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get louder. It's my tendency, as you can tell. He just simply tells them that they don't understand and he wants them to just listen. And then he says this, little children, I am with you, what? A little while longer. It speaks to Jesus' impending death, but to the superior nature of his kind of death because Jesus was in control. There was no death pangs put on him that weren't willingly put on him, my friends. Jesus, make no mistake about it, is the king and he sits on the throne and even death itself cannot conquer. He conquered death. You remember that phrase that Jesus often used so far in this gospel? The hour, what? Had not come or it has not come. The hour has not come. 
And then finally in chapter 12, something happens. And Jesus says what? The hour has come. And that too is where Jesus says the Son of Man will be glorified. And here Jesus says, a little while longer and I will be glorified. I will be glorified. Christ's not, sacrifice is not only superior, but it's also singular in its nature. It's superior because no one can do it, only he himself. But it's also singular. You cannot come. Look at, look at what uh, Jesus says to them. <clears throat> you will seek me, as I said to you, now as I'm saying to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter later on wants to come. He wants to go with Jesus. But there will be a time when his disciples can follow him, and Jesus does say that. In fact, in chapter 14, Jesus says he is going to prepare a place for them to come. But Jesus has to go first. And my friends, this is where religion gets it wrong. Only Jesus can go first. You can't clean yourself up enough to make it happen. Only Jesus is the spotless lamb that can be acceptable to the God of heaven. You see, his sacrifice is singular in the sense that only he can do it. It's not you and Jesus. It's not you. It's just Jesus and Jesus alone. He even says, you know, I, I, I tried to tell the Jewish leaders and they didn't get it. They were blinded by all the things they were trying to add on. And so Christ's sacrifice is singular. It's superior. But my friends, it's also, and aren't we so thankful, it's sufficient. Look at verses 36 and 37. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I want to lay down my life for you. It's sufficient because Jesus says you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. You cannot follow me now, but you will with certainty because of my sacrifice, because of what I'm going to do for you, Peter, because of the way that I love you. Just wait. Don't fear. No matter who's around or what happens or what's going on in the world, my sacrifice is sufficient, Peter. You will come. You will follow. And, and Peter says, why can't I follow you now? I, I, you know, Peter, right? How many of us have a little Peter in them, right? It's the kid that always wants it right now. Guilty, right? Who doesn't want? Oh, Jesus, I want you to forget later. Let's talk about now. Take your Bibles and just go to chapter 14. <clears throat> and let's just look at verse 27. See, if Peter truly got it, this is what Peter would have gotten. Jesus follows up with this 
in the discourse, he says, peace I live, leave with you, peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And we see 11 grown men let their hearts become troubled. Let it fill up with fear. And Jesus, even to a little girl, denies his teacher. Excuse me, did I say Jesus? I meant Peter. I don't know what I said. Dayquil's doing a number on whatever it is I'm saying. Hopefully you guys know what I'm talking about. If not, the word of God never returns void. That's what everyone thinks of when they take Dayquil and start to preach. Right? You heard that I said to you, I go away. This is verse 28, chapter 14. You heard, Jesus says, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you wouldn't have said, I'm ready to, I'm ready to pull out my sword and defend you. That was self-love. That was motivated by something other than love. Because what does Jesus say? If you loved me, you would have what? Rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. You see, Peter missed it. He missed the sufficiency of Jesus' death. He missed the sufficiency of what Jesus and only Jesus can do. Because he didn't rejoice. Peter didn't rejoice. He protested. He offered to lay down his life, which was a thin veil for love, but really all about who? It had to be all, if it wasn't love, it had to be what? It had to be all about himself. This was out of fear, not love. If not, Peter would have rejoiced. And here's where we see the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. When Jesus says, you will follow me later, just very quickly, listen to me as I read Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. It says, the, the, the author of Hebrews describes the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. When he says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, he's speaking of Jesus, who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. No, Jesus was able to offer up his sacrifice once and for all, for all sins. Because his sacrifice and his alone is sufficient. It's sufficient. Peter, it's sufficient. Steve, it's sufficient. Don't try to add to it. Don't take away from it. Don't let the fears and the failures rob you of the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice for you. Ever. That's not the kind of Savior we have. It's just not. We have a Savior that knows your shortcomings. And he knows mine. And he loved you and me to the end. And so it's a sufficient and superior sacrifice. It could be three denials. It could be 300 denials. It does not matter, my friends. 
And so we find our way not only to glorifying God, not only through uh, perfect sacrifice, but now in our text as we close, and I'll try to wrap up very quickly, through personal sacrifice. And this is the evidence of love, and this is the lesson Jesus has for you and for me who do not have Jesus right next to us anymore. We find our way through personal sacrifice. And, and so in verse 34, we see, first of all, the audience of love. Verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Well, what's the audience of love there? It's one another. It, it really is within the confines of these four walls and, and the church in general. The church isn't the building, the people are. I understand that. But this is the object lesson that Jesus was doing when he washed his disciples' feet. He didn't do it to anybody else. He washed their feet. And he wants you and me to first prioritize, listen to me very carefully, prioritize loving what? Who, I should say? One another. You say, well, what about our evangelistic necessities? What about going into all the world? What about, for God so loved the world? Yes, all those things are true. And they're also in this text, because look on. Look on. Jesus says, by this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then he says what? Verse 35. By this, all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love, for one another. It's not if you have love for them. It's not if you do good to them. It's not if you have a lot of money and you use it for them. It's first, the priority, loving one another. And that kind of love will shine so brightly that it will outshine any of the pseudo-loves that the world has to offer at any time and in any place for anyone. Do you understand that? Those are pseudo-loves if they are not loving according to God, according to Jesus. And Jesus says, first, Christian, you want to make an impact? You want to be evangelistic? You want to let your light so shine? It better be so bright that together a bunch of lights is brighter than just one. And Jesus wants all of our lumens. Rick's, a, Rick's a, an electrician guy. He gets lumens. He wants all of our lumens to be together to shine forth and broadcast the great love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, don't do it by yourself. You cannot do it by yourself. You've got to prioritize loving one another. So what's the new part of this command? Well, it's not love. I mean, that's existed in the law. You probably know this. All the way back to Leviticus. Loving one another is not a, it's not a crazy thing. It's not a new thing. But it is towards each other, and specifically, and now in the, the church that will be. But we also see another aspect of the newness of this command. And that is the action of love. So we had the audience of love, now the action of love. This is a new command because it perfectly is demonstrated by Jesus Christ. Because how does he qualify what love is? 
Look at verse 33, uh, excuse me, 34. That you love one another, what? Even as I have loved you. That is the powerful definition of love. Nothing else. Nothing else. 1 John chapter 3 puts it this way. In verse 16, the, 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 the same writer in his epistle writes this. He says, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So you know what John is saying? He's saying you're coming into this room and if, if, if brother Nick over here wants, needs me to lay down my life for him, that's how I would demonstrate love. I would literally give my life for him. That's what John is saying. How big would our church be? Well, you know what? Thankfully, we're not often called to love to that end, are we? I have never been called or asked to lay down my life for somebody else's. And John knew that. So he kept on going, and he said in verse 17, he says this. Now, this is 1 John chapter 3. I'm not in the gospel anymore. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, he says. He uses that same phrase. It's interesting, isn't it? Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we may not be called to lay down our lives for each other, but we certainly are called to sacrifice for each other, just like Jesus did. Sometimes I have to sacrifice by biting my tongue. A lot of times I do. Sometimes I need to sacrifice by doing something different with my time. I need to sacrifice in my own family to make sure that I am here so that me and my family can love you and so that you can love us. There are a lot of sacrifices. Some of them look really small compared to giving your life. Some of them may look bigger, but they're orienting our whole life. Our life, our life is turned upside down for the love of Jesus. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Is your life turned upside down? Or is it more about you and your time and your ways and your money and your fill in the blank? You see, that's how John wants us to take this. He's not asking you to lay down his life, your life. He's asking you to turn your life upside down, to love. And it is obvious when you do because it hurts because it is sacrificial. And there's an acuteness of love, and that's verses 37 through 38, and basically, Jesus says there, Peter, you're not gonna actually do what you say you're gonna do. You're gonna deny me. And Jesus, the acuteness there is, is the, 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 that love is based in truth, and we kind of already hit on that a little bit through obedience, and so I'm gonna end my sermon because it's, it's, there's lunch out there, apparently. You guys are all hungry, but I do wanna just read my conclusion. I won't preach it. I'll just read it. So I'm going to go back to my teachers who are helping me today. Teachers, if, if 
they know that they're going to be absent for a long duration of time, they leave a lesson plan for a substitute to follow, don't they? A good one does, a caring one does. Jesus begins to instruct his students, the disciples, for his departure and their remaining behind. This instruction is just as true for you and for me today as it was for the 11 2,000 some years ago. And Jesus' lesson plan is this. In my absence, what you need to do is to love one another as I showed you how. There it is a Jesus substitute teacher in loving one another. In other words, you and I partly step into the role of becoming the substitute teacher when we love like Christ asks us to love one another. Do you understand that? You have a role to play in helping me not fear and doubt by loving me. And I have a role to play, a substitute teacher role to play to help you not fear and doubt and be uncertain about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done in your life. I told you I wouldn't preach, so I'm going to stop. There's another substitute teacher in loving one another, and that's in subsequent chapters, and we're going to find out that's the Holy Spirit who's indwelling you. And it just so happens that the first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit will allow us and enable us to do that. Christian, how are you at listening to the substitute teachers here? And how are you at substitute teaching? There are a lot of distractors in the classroom, aren't there? Good teachers try to remove those distractors. But man, what's going on in the world right now, what went on in the world 30 years ago, and what's going to go on in the world if Jesus doesn't come 30 years from now, is always going to be a distraction. Always. There's always going to be reasons to fear and to doubt. But when I walk into this place, I'm reminded again that Jesus is enough through you. And hopefully you are through me. That's the power of what this place does. That is the lesson Jesus wants you and me to learn today. That we have a part to play in his departure for one another to love like Christ loved. And for those of you who are here, and you might be struck by the simple but powerful way that Jesus taught his disciples to love by following his perfect example of giving himself as a sacrifice for their sins. I encourage you that Jesus wants you to love like him, and not just with words, as we read, but powerfully in your life. And he will give you the power to do that as he's increasingly giving us the power to do that, or increasingly, or, or, or giving us the power to increasingly do that, I should say. But it's not something you can do on your own. Love in the Bible is defined this way. It's actually defined by a person. How's it defined? God is what? Love. God is love. That is the measure of love, nothing else. God is the measure of love. Not morality, not identity, not anything. But we can clear all those ideas from a biblical standpoint when God is love. And the only way to get to God is through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus makes that clear. And Jesus says, believe in me because I am the way, the truth, the life. Believe in me and you will not be in darkness. You will be in light. Believe in me and I will remove your sins through my perfect sacrifice, Jesus says. And So I just want to ask you this morning, will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? 
will you be taught by the master who truly loves you so that you can love others. Father, this morning I pray that you would help us. Thank you for the good attention of these folks and for their patience. Help us, Father, to love you um, the way that you call us to. Help us to do that. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you, who are sitting here and they're wondering about the love of Jesus. Father, please help them today to know with certainty that Jesus died for their sins. and All they have to do is simply place their faith in him. Father, help us as a congregation to take this lesson and to remember to apply it on a daily basis. Help us to orchestrate our time and our gifts, our family, our resources, to love you. And we do that by loving one another first, not at the exclusion of being an evangelistic, but that's the first step to being evangelistic. Pray that you'd show us the way of. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I'm aware that it's 11.33, so I'm going to just ask um, that the pianist plays. Is that okay? And, uh, and then we'll just be dismissed, okay? Thank you for your patience this morning, for letting us do some extra things, and um, I really appreciate that, okay? So Jacob, are you here? Somebody's here. He's there. Can't even see him. Uh, you go ahead and let these good folks go. Thank you so much for coming today.